Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're back with David Folkerts-Landau. He's Deutsche Bank chief economist. David, when I look, first of all, you're Mario Draghi, right? And uh, you've done everything you could with your mandate to try and reflate the economy or at least uh, show a steady recovery. You've taken <clears throat> risk out of yields, right? Because that's exactly what you wanted so that uh, there are no bond vigilantes. But actually, how do you deal with the Donald Trump presidency? Is it much more uncertainty? Again, he's dealing with the exit of the UK from the European Union. And we don't know what comes next. Well, continental Europe has been a challenged continent in economic terms for some time now uh, in that uh, we have a central bank that's basically run out of ammunition and, and overshot uh, its, its, not its mandate, but overshot its policy uh, tools quite a bit, uh, ending up with a couple of trillion balance sheet pretty soon. Uh, we have a, a government securities markets that don't properly signal risk anymore right. because of uh, OMT and others. Uh, and we've got 20% plus unemployment, youth unemployment. France is 13% regular unemployment. Uh, and we've just marked down growth uh, to almost half what we had just six months ago. This election has a tremendous impact on Europe, tremendously negative. Um, think, of think of defense right. uh, in the sense that Europe basically doesn't have a proper defense posture except for NATO. If uh, the president-elect chooses to uh, uh, reduce his contributions to NATO, that'll impose a tremendous burden on Europeans. But can it be a wake-up call? And in certain, you know, this U.S. election it, result, will it shift European values it, or will it just spur the, the politicians' uh, attention? That, that is the big worry that people like me have in the sense that, yes, it should be a wake-up call. It could be a wake-up call. Europe has the complete right. potential to catch up <clears> with this. The question is the political arrangements are so entrenched and it's so difficult to get change done in Europe and to get policy reactions done quickly that there are, I'm very pessimistic about that. Well, within that, let's carry that forward. Bring up the chart here, Anthony, if you would, in London. This is the Italian tenure, and I've regressed yeah. it back to 2011, and it's amazing off that red line, the, leg, the, the move up. If I talk about Italy as an emerging market, to the rescue is supposed to come European federalism. I don't observe it. Is it there? So, so, well, it definitely is there. So here we have a country um, that there has a 130% plus debt to GDP ratio, zero growth, uh, runs a deficit of 3%, so it keeps accumulating debt. Um, and it was trading 100 pips above Bund, uh, completely distorted. Now, given that the referendum is outcome is in doubt, uh, you see it all of a sudden going up 100 basis points. My worry is that as we come closer to the referendum date, and as Trump's changes make themselves felt, that you're going to see uh, external investors pulling back completely. And instead of getting a 100 yeah. basis point, we're going to go to 4%. <clears throat> and, and then you're going to have an impact on the banking system in Italy right. and the rest of Europe. So for me, Italy is the country that I will, 
I would worry about as a flashpoint it, for additional European spending. Francine, jump in here, but what's so critical here, and you had Joe Stiglitz as your morning must-read yeah. uh, this morning. There was a Stiglitz equation that even the most arch-conservative economist or politician had to look at, which is that, that G, that growth rate, in the formula of how a country moves forward. And as Dr. Fulkerts-Landau mentions, the little g isn't there for Italy and so much more of Europe. Right, but I, I guess the, the question is, as appalling as it may seem to um, more liberal factions of, of politics or what we're accustomed to, would someone from the Five Star Movement jumpstart growth in Italy, or is that just unthinkable? No, I, I think that'll be... It's probably not going to happen, but what needs to happen is that there, uh, if Italy gets into difficulty, it needs an IMF program. Uh, in other words, there have to be a general realignment on the regulatory side, uh, uh, market efficiency and labor market efficiency, and it's got to be done from outside. Outside agency like the IMF, it will not be or done. I, I don't know actually, will it be accepted? And would the alternative be for Italy to um, sometimes this, choose to leave the European Union? Actually? This, is, this is what I mean by saying yes, this could be a wake up call, these changes could be made, but we have seen since <laughs> OMT that. Uh, right. That changes haven't been made. Okay, uh, this the reforms is the, haven't been done. This is the IMF program. Bring up this chart, Francine. This is the Egyptian pound. Are you are you equating Italy with the depreciation managed by the IMF of the Egyptian pound? I mean, it's a little bit entertaining here, folks. I'm not equating Cairo to Rome, but come on, an IMF bailout of Italy or an IMF reorganization of Italy—that's strong language. Not a reorganization, not a bailout. Italy needs to reform its labor markets, its pension system, its legal system, its government, governance system, its <clears throat> banking system. Uh, this has not happened. It is not happened. It is posing a risk for the rest of Europe. And it isn't happening because of OMT. Once you take OMT, the ECB, out of the picture, you will see BTP rates going to 4%. And then you will have this particular problem. Francine, I want to begin uh, with this conversation with you on... Italy and your thoughts on what Dr. Folkerts Landau said about the IMF coming in. To me, that's almost unimaginable that they would do that. Right. I mean, the problem to, uh, you know, David's point is that we've been trying to reform the country for, what, 10, 15 years? 20? We had a lot more. Well, you could argue that the former political class wasn't that keen on reforming. But, you know, since Matteo Renzi came into power, we were expecting many more things. Yep. Youth unemployment is absolutely yep. true. And so what I agree with David on is that if you look at the Donald Trump presidency and the fact that he got elected, when you have 20 percent, even 22 percent youth unemployment, that you are going to see a lot mm. of people in Italy actually having for a protest vote. So it's very likely that he will lose a referendum. What comes next? And would it be palatable, palatable to, to the Italians to actually get into an IMF program? Uh, no, uh, it would be very, very difficult, <clears throat> and I suspect that the European would put, Europeans would put something together by way of a troika or something like that to have it domestically, to have it inside European financed and uh, with European rules attached to it. Um, but that's not how the global financial system is supposed to work. The IMF sits at the center. If a country has debt difficulties, uh, that's where the reforms are supposed to come from, and uh, not just regionally. Uh, so uh, I'm... I'm uh, the actual outcome will probably not involve an IMF, but that's where it should be going. But again, the heart of the debate going back more than 20 years is Germany has the same currency as Italy. And they're not the same economies, are they? So look at the statistic. From 1970 to the year 2000, when the euro began, Germany revalued against the lira by 80%. 8-0. 8-0. Now, that's over. You can't do it anymore. 
Yeah, the same currency now. That means Italy has to continue to have a domestic, a domestic devaluation in prices. You can only precisely, and, and this is very, very hard to do. So this problem with Italy is going to be with us for a long time to come, unless Italy implements very significant, very deep structural reforms, and it can't do that by itself. David, in, in 20 seconds, would Italy be better off outside the eurozone? It's tough. Without reforms, yes. With reforms, it'd be better inside the eurozone. Obviously, if it can pull itself together, new reforms stay in. Without it, uh, you just have you're constantly on the verge of crisis. We continue to look forward here after the election of Donald Trump to see what he might do policy-wise, who he might appoint to his cabinet. Also useful here to look back uh, and see how so many polls uh, got it so wrong. Frank Newport is the editor-in-chief of Gallup, the venerable uh, polling agency, and and it's great to speak with you, Frank. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thank you. Good to be with you. Help us understand here how so many people got this so wrong. Going into the election, it seemed like a a sure bet that that Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidency. What happened? Well, uh, we've, of course, been looking at that. Gallup was not uh, involved in trying to predict the election, so I'm kind of looking at this as a dispassionate outside observer this time. Uh, A confluence of factors. Let me mention several real quickly. One is Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote, and she's probably going to win by 1% to 2%. So it was a confusing election in that sense. Uh, Note that the national polls, which said she would win the national uh, vote, were actually accurate and actually not that far off, probably going to be more accurate than they were in 2012. So these national polls which said, here's the popular vote, uh, I think given all the constraints that polling is under, did a pretty good job. Second, the problem was state polling, which is notoriously difficult in states like Wisconsin uh, and Michigan and North Carolina to a degree. uh, The polling had suggested that she would win, and she didn't. Uh, And when those polls went awry, these so-called forecasting models, which became all the rage this time, uh, all they do is take those state polls and crank them into some pseudoscientific <clears throat> model. So when those state polls weren't so good, these forecasting models yeah. came out, oh, 71%, 85%, 90% probability that she'll win. And everybody just took that as gospel. And that's why that compounded to make it really look yeah. like people were wrong. Uh, nicely said. Frank Newport, help me here with one over the square root of N in that I find no one bothers to have uh, pay reverence and honor to margin of error. With all the killing of pollers and strategists and pundits, are we just juvenile in our disrespect for margin of error? Well, I think so. Margin of error, we can use, uh, I think it just symbolizes the fact that polling is an estimate of a population parameter, and, and they're going to be, it can't be precise. It's very difficult, particularly in a state. Uh, most states have hugely different voting in the metropolitan areas and outstate. You know, it's true in Wisconsin, you know, Milwaukee is totally, in Madison, totally different than outstate. It's true in Pennsylvania, you know, Philadelphia is totally or strongly Democratic, but the outstate is like Alabama and Pennsylvania. So if you get those, you're trying to estimate turnout across these areas. And if you miss the turnout estimates, of course, you're going to miss the overall estimate. And it's hard. In Wisconsin, the last poll was done six days before the election. A lot might have changed. So, yes, polls are just estimates. And in these close swing states are close by definition, right? So they're the hardest states of all to try to estimate what's going to happen in. So it's very tricky business. Frank, going into Election Day, the Donald Trump campaign was very confident, said it was very confident in its internal polling. Help us understand the difference there between internal polling and the kind of polling that Gallup does that uh, other polling houses do. 
Of course, success is a father. Failure has many, uh, is an orphan, you know. Uh, success has many fathers. So, of course, the, the people who want to, oh, yeah, we knew it all along. Uh, internal polling is nothing but uh, the polling that's paid for and done by the candidates. They just don't release it publicly. Sometimes it's pretty good. They have pretty good pollsters, and they do their own poll. They do them in some unusual ways to try to predict what's happening. So when a candidate says, my internal polling tells X or Y, he's talking about or she's talking about the polling that they pay for, well, which can be good. These people are pretty skilled that work for the candidates. Very quickly here, and we're going we're gonna to have you stay with us, uh, we, a lot of talk about the, the effect of the, the email investigation. How large did that loom here on voters' minds going to the ballot box on Tuesday? Uh, it was huge. We asked, uh, with the project we did with Michigan, University of Michigan and Georgetown, we were asking voters every day, uh, what did you read, see, or hear about Hillary Clinton and Trump in the last day or two? And email just dominated, going all the way back to July. Um, emails, emails, emails. I wrote this in a piece. Emails were the bane of Hillary Clinton's existence. She wishes she'd never seen an email, uh, I'm sure. But the, a lot of voters just latched on to emails uh, in all their manifestations. You know, Huma Abedin's emails, mm. her server's emails, uh, Podesta's emails, all these different kind of emails came to symbolize, it looked like to us for voters, uh, a lot of her weaknesses in terms of uh, their perception she was dishonest and also kind of uh, colluding with the power. David Gura here with Tom Keene, also joined by Frank Newport, editor-in-chief of Gallup. We were talking about some of the issues on voters' minds going to the ballot box on, on Tuesday. Frank, let me ask you what we know about turnout. Our conversations ahead of Election Day all centered on uh, how readily, how easily these candidates could get people to come to the polls. What do we know now, six days out, about how well they did that? Well, um, the, the votes are still being counted to some degree, but it looks like overall turnout uh, is not was not high. In fact, it was lower than the last several elections. So overall, this was not a uh, robust turnout election, and that's important. Uh, enthusiasm was, a, was the lowest we've measured in Gallup before the election, so people just weren't excited about it. Two very unfavorably evaluated candidates. It certainly doesn't look like... Um, from what I've seen so far, that Hillary Clinton was able to duplicate the turnout among certain groups that Barack Obama had been able to generate. That would be young people and minorities. Um, and to some degree, she didn't get the same level of vote. Uh, Latinas actually voted, it looked like from the exit polls, slightly less for her than they did vote for Barack Obama against Mitt Romney back in 2012. So that was an issue as well. And as everybody has talked about and noted, uh, the data clearly suggests that uh, Trump was able to get higher than usual turnout in rural areas, uh, areas outside metropolitan areas in some of these key swing states, and that was very, very important for him. Newport, how will your world change? I, I'm in the camp of not wanting to bash on pollsters. I think there's a lot more moving parts going on. But is it the same old, same old four years from now, or will it forever change for pollsters? Well, I'm not sure it will forever change uh, at all. Um, again, Gallup uh, was not involved in the horse race estimate at all, which is a change. You know, we decided to put our effort elsewhere. We think, and I personally think there's too much effort on just trying to forecast who's going to win. We should spend more time on understanding why candidates winning and what the voters want candidates to do. All of this huge amount of effort and time and the forecasting goes away after the election. Who cares? You know, that doesn't have any lasting value. Uh, broadly speaking, it's a good question. The industry as a whole is always looking at change. You know, we used to do all of our interviewing in person. That shifted to the telephone. There's a lot of in, uh, institutions that are doing Internet polling now, you know, trying to use the Internet or smartphones. So I think the methods that pollsters use are going to change and may be different four years from now, regardless of the election, just in general. But our goal will remain the same, and that is trying, which I think is critically important in a democracy, trying to measure and understand what Americans are thinking and feeling. That's an important goal, and we need to keep doing that.
Frank, some of our colleagues at, uh, at another news outlet, I won't name it, already looking ahead to 2020. Oh, go ahead, please. <laughs> name it. All right. it's, a, it's a piece in the Hill looking at the top 10 uh, Democrats who might run for, for the nomination in, in, in 2020. So here we are, you know, with five, six days since election. We're already starting to look ahead to 2020. What, what, uh, what, what did we learn from this campaign about the persistence of campaigning uh, in the year 2016? Well, we know the public thought this campaign was horrible. The tone was negative. They weren't satisfied with how it was run. It went on too long. The public doesn't like the Electoral College. We would rather go to a direct popular vote. That's been evident for decades now. The public would like a lot of change in this. Um, it's hard to get a precise measure on how uh, short the campaign should be, but I think Americans would be quite happy if we cut down this year and a half's worth of slog through campaigning um, down to something that was much more reasonable in terms of time, if that's what you're asking. Uh, rather than, I mean, you're right, these candidates are already assembling staffs now uh, looking ahead to, to 2020. Frank, what will we see? Oh, we think we just lost Frank uh, Newport. Well, we thank him uh, for his effort today. David, you and I can continue here. David, I, I thought without question the most important essay of the weekend was Robert Skidelsky, Lord Skidelsky, writing in Project Syndicate, the great Keynesian biographer who, who gave us, uh, David, immense history. And that's in so much of the analysis been missing. We can barely get some people to go back to 1960 and the regime change of JFK. We certainly have trouble going back to early Eisenhower, even back to the 20s and Calvin Coolidge. And Skidelsky did that with a vengeance of how things can unravel if it's not properly managed. Lord Skidelsky, who I think you're going to be speaking with, with tomorrow. He's on with us tomorrow. An incredible yeah. piece and, and uh, made me think of the conversation that we had with Neil Ferguson on, on Friday. He was trying to imbue a bit of yeah. that into to the conversation. Uh, now a couple of days out. I got around to reading that Michael Barone piece that, that you wanted me to, to check out in the Washington Examiner. Michael Barone's column on the heels of that election. He called uh, it astounding. That was the lead to the piece. Astounding. That's the best word to describe the tumultuous election night and to, to most people the surprise victory of Donald Trump uh, uh, in that election. Uh, Really interesting as I began to sort of sift through the, the demographics, uh, looking at, the, at, at who voted, something Frank Newport was talking about just a few moments ago, and who didn't vote. And I think that the, the headline there uh, of the fact that so many fewer people went to the polls is going to be something we're going to be working yeah. with for a while here. I put the bar chart out. I can't remember. I'm sorry, folks. I can't remember the citation, but a very simple bar chart that basically said uh, the president of 2008 and the president of 2012, they simply didn't show up for Secretary Clinton. David, tell our global audience the color of protest Saturday and Sunday uh, in New York and around the country. Was it different than the previous days? Was there something distinctive? I got the sense. I, I wasn't in Manhattan on, on Saturday, but from social media and talking to friends, I, I got a sense that the protests were growing in size. I think there was a march from, from Union Square up Fifth Avenue. Um, so I think that that, that anger continues, and, and that anger seems to be getting channeled into these into these protests. Uh, I continue to wonder, Tom, sort of what the, the, the end result of that will be. In other words, what are the... Yes, there are grievances here. There are people who are upset with how the election... Uh, turned out on Tuesday. Uh, they're, they're making that uh, dissatisfaction known, but I don't know what the, the end game for that is. And of yeah. course, uh, this was something that Donald Trump talked about in that interview last night. Uh, Leslie Stahl asking him, you know, if he had a message for, for those protesters. And he said uh, yeah. two words, stop it. And CBS since then has gotten a lot of criticism for, for holding that, as we've seen uh, violence escalate, right. uh, you know, in, in cities across the country. Uh, Donald Trump with a, a, a concise message to protesters there to, to lay off. It was interesting coming out of Heathrow 
folks the vibrancy, of course, of the airport always uh, visible. I got in on early Sunday morning, but they're driving out around the acclaimed rotary. Uh, David Gura was the big billboard sign, obviously talking their book of the runway coming up in eight or nine years ago. It was, you know, <laughs> interesting to see the core infrastructure project of the Western world as we know it bannered across uh, the entryway to the four-lane highway into London. Speaking of infrastructure well. here, again, the, the conversation here centers on, on on that infrastructure package. Donald Trump's promise to double what Hillary Clinton would have done. So so he will no doubt be hashing that out with House Speaker Paul Ryan and the, the Senate Majority Leader. I was uh, struck over the weekend by how Donald Trump is beginning to piece together his, his administration, obviously hiring Steve Bannon and Ryan mm-hmm. Priebus for senior positions in his staff. He called the, the president of China last night, or rather received a phone call from the president of China last night. Uh, he said that the, the president wished him well uh, after the historic election. And uh, according to the Trump uh, transition mm-hmm. team here, during the call, the leaders established a clear sense of mutual respect for one another. Mm-hmm. And President-elect uh, Trump stated that he believes the two leaders will have one of the strongest relationships for both countries uh, moving forward. I'm just thinking what Jane <clears> Foley was saying here about uh, the degree to which the rhetoric we heard on the campaign trail may erode. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David Gurr in New York. I'm in London. And joining me now, Charles Duma, who has been remarkably prescient about tepid economic growth. He is with T.S. Lombard, joins us now. I first must congratulate you on the acquisition of Jonathan Fenby. This is like cricket or baseball. This this involved (laughs) massive negotiations. What what a joy to see the thoughtful stuff T.S. Lombard does and to bring Mr. Fenby into it. Why'd you hire Mr. Fenby? Well, we didn't hire him. Um, we merged with um, trusted mm-hmm. sources, and um, we're putting the political into so political economy. So that's the T.S. of Lombard. That's it, yep. This and is fabulous. The yeah, two of you very... together. Tell me about the T.S. Lombard worldview. What will that be post-Trump? Well, I think um, as far as post-Trump goes, he seems to be... Uh, he, it's interesting, you know, he's uh, one thing as a candidate, something slightly different as um, pre- mm-hmm. as elected, uh, if not yet uh, inaugurated president. So, um, you know, these contrasts right. are quite usual, as a matter of fact. <clears throat> I, I learned this weekend, Charles Dumas, that uh, part of the known world doesn't know who Nelson Rockefeller is, which surprised me. Is yep. this Rockefeller Republicanism in a new guise? Well, he's certainly, um, economically, you could argue, to the left of Mrs. Clinton, um, which is an interesting point. Uh, Although, obviously, if we're going for a a much easier fiscal stance, it may well be more in the form of uh, tax cuts um, at the top end of the range and corporation tax cuts. But, of course, the the infrastructure side is also extremely interesting and, um, and rather positive. To dig into the fiscal side there, how does a, a Donald Trump presidency complicate things for, for the European Central Bank? Well, uh, never mind the European Central Bank. What about the Fed? 
Um, you know, our view is that uh, you're looking at inflation that's around 2% now, just over 2 for the CPI, just under 2 for the consumer deflator on a core basis. And oil prices are up over the course of the year, so by early next year, the um, the CPI is going to be close to 2.5% and the deflator is going to be around 2%. Now, if you look at when wages that are currently coming through at about 2.5-3% were formed, which is about a year back, inflation was virtually nil. So um, people are expecting, or at 5% unemployment they were, were bargaining, for 2% uh, yeah. real gains. And add that to 2% <clears throat> inflation and you're looking yeah. at uh, a wage price spiral. I mean, David, your question brings up something important. This doesn't work on Bloomberg Radio, but I'll probably do this, David Girl, tomorrow on television, which is to compare and contrast the dot chart of now mm. versus where it was a click ago. And the answer is the market's moved. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And, and so to get back to I mean, so I guess what I'm saying is that the Fed – it has got a lot of catching up to do. Um, that um, inflation is likely to be two percent by early next year, and pushing towards three percent a year later. So, um, you know, even if they um, tightened by a quarter percent every second meeting, they'd still be behind inflation in two years' time. I, I had a conversation with uh, with a woman last week who's charged with heading up the, the monetary policy side of things for the Donald Trump transition team. It was a it was a frustrating conversation in part because she she wasn't allowing very much here. From where you sit, what does a Donald Trump Fed look like? Do we have any sense of of whom he might appoint to these two vacancies? Uh, you know, who might replace Janet Yellen in two thousand eighteen? Any sense of his his vision for monetary policy? No, I don't think he's got round to that in any kind of serious way. Um, but what I do think is um, become evident, particularly here in Britain over the last few months, is that um, there's no such thing as a non-political monetary policy. Um, and um, so I think yeah. the, the business of independence, whether the Fed, Bank of England or anyone else, is liable to start being eroded, can, and with good reason, I should have said. Can you link all of the expectations, the set of expectations that we have and what has changed in our world, can you link them in to higher real GDP? I think in terms of longer-term growth, um, Maybe tax Maybe. cuts help a little bit. Um, and over time, we're expecting some improvement in labor mobility, which has been held back badly by student debt and the uh, housing crisis. Uh, and that should ease over time. Um, so that, those, are, those are potential pluses. Uh, only one of them is policy-related, of course. Um, the infrastructure side, I suppose, also... Um, may help growth, but more of the point, it, um, it, it supports the existing level of activity and um, a kind of decent life for people on a day-to-day -day basis, never mind measured GDP. Charles Dumas with us in London, Latias Lombard, David Gurr, of course, in uh, New York as well. Charles Dumas, uh, David Folkerts-Landau of Deutsche Bank today talked about the reality of the Euro experiment. You have been one of the foremost critics of a combined euro, and Dr. Folkert's Landau focused on the fact that Germany and Italy are pegged with the same currency, so all of Italian adjustment must come through the domestic regime. Italian lira was 900 lira per Deutsche Bank, and it ought to be now 2,200 lira per Deutsche Bank, but it hasn't been allowed to depreciate. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, the Italian inflation has been much higher than Germans. And so um, the result is that the exchange rate reflects 
uh, a blend of the two, if you like, for the euro, and that means it's uh, too cheap for, Euros, for, for Germany and too expensive for Italy. In fact, if you look at the if you look at the long run average um, real level of um, German exchange rate, it's about 20% below that long run average, even including the the years of the euro. In other words, the average going back to um, Bretton Woods in 1973. I mean, this is pretty simple geometry. Uh, you you know the parameters. Paul de Graar will be with us tomorrow with the London School of Economics. He and Charles Weiplotz and others look for a clearing of the European market. Does President-elect Trump help Europe towards tough decisions that have been delayed? Well, um, not really. I don't think so. No, I, th I think that the only way in which he does that is actually by um, making people feel making the establishment feel scared and maybe just a, a mite more self-critical because um, any normal establishment by now would have done something about the euro. I mean, we've had 20, 23% average unemployment in Spain for about six years on the trot, um, and yet um, no one is proposing any major changes in the, in the regime. The growth rate has been pretty undistinguished even in Germany. I mean, people talk about Germany being successful, but you've got to remember that if you measure it against 1998, the last pre-euro year, German and British GDP are up about the same. They're up in per head about 26% for Germany, 28% for Britain, but that's roughly the same. Now, when you look at uh, after-tax income in real terms, after allowing for inflation, um, the British number per head is up about the same, 27%. But the German number is up only 15%. So fundamentally, they've sacrificed the interests of their citizens yeah. in order to earn these great surpluses. Uh, and the other guys are simply worse than that. I mean, Italy, yeah. GDP is minus 1% ahead. <clears throat> uh, uh, over 17 years, it's minus 1%. And, G and disposable yeah. income is down by 50, about, sorry, by 7 percentage points. They're actually poorer than they were in yeah. the 90s. David Gurl, jump into this conversation. Yeah, Charles, tonight President Obama boards Air Force One for what's looking like his final trip as, as president overseas. He's traveling to Greece, to Athens tomorrow, and then to Germany on the, the heels of that. Mm. What do you expect him to say? Or what do you expect him to say about the, about the European Union, about the euro, in that major speech he's scheduled to deliver tomorrow in Athens? Well, unfortunately, I don't expect him to address the issues I'm talking about because what someone needs to do is to tell these guys that actually the euro hasn't worked. And sometimes when you take a wrong turning, you know, you soldier on, you find a new way to where you want to get. But other times you go back to the turning and you take the other turning. And that's really what they need to do here. And I don't see Obama saying anything like that. The ECB meets in, in a couple of weeks' time. They're going to reevaluate their, their bond-buying program. How big an issue is scarcity for, for the ECB right now? And um, give us your sense of, of where things are headed. Well, I think, um, you know, they're going to want to keep policy easy through the French election, which lasts until about May. And then they're going to want to be visibly tighter before the German election, which comes up in, um, in, in September, October. So we're expecting, therefore, a tapering to start uh, in the in the summer, which Having is early. Said, That's that, you're, you're expecting it to happen earlier than many. Yeah, that's probably right. But, the, you know, the, the Eurozone economy has actually been growing above its trend for the last three years, believe it or not. That's because 1.5% is about twice the trend, because the trend's so feeble. But, I mean, it still means that um, there's no longer any serious fear of deflation, and the inflation rate is going to be about 1%, which is, you know, not too far from the, from the, um, from, from the target. So, you know, you've got a situation where there's no particular reason to have negative interest rates, massively negative real mm -hmm. interest rates, and a whopping great quantitative easing right. on top. 
Uh, just so you know, your colleague Jonathan Fenby has just written a fabulous new book on France. I don't know if he's voiced I it. See. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I've seen it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's obnoxiously thick. <laughs> it's yep. a fabulous book, and I said to Mr. Fenby, "What would Charles de Gaulle do? What will Marine Le Pen do?" Well, Marine Le Pen, of course, is is nicely placed, and the and the real the real issue here for the eurozone is that. Um, there's a lot of momentum behind this protest voting these days. I mean, you know, Brexit may have seemed like a standout back in June, but that was a big enough shock. Now we've got um, what looks like a protest vote putting uh, Donald Trump in as president, um, and we've got a very powerful um, right-wing protest voting blocks in Holland, which comes up in February, March, where, frankly, they're even better organized than Mrs. Le Pen. And then Mrs. Le Pen, as you say, in, um, in April, May, who will probably be in, ahead in the first round for president. She may not win the, 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 the runoff, but um, she'll probably be ahead in the starting, starting blocks. And then, of course, when we get to Germany, uh, they, they hate these uh, zero interest rates because um, they think that's how they subsidize the rest of Europe, basically. Mm. Uh, and so, um, so you can more or less guarantee that if you believe in political monetary economics, as I do, uh, there's a high chance of, um, of tapering having started by then. But of course, the, in the near term, the um, ECB may well extend the um, extend the, uh, the quantitative easing for a few months just to keep the French happy. Uh, and um, there's probably just, uh, to answer your question, there's probably just enough um, stuff out there that they can buy under the current rules to last for another three months, possibly even six, uh, and get them over the hump from March, where it runs out now, to um, just after the French election. Charles Dumas, thank you so much. Matthias Lombard. It's extraordinary. It doesn't get doesn't it doesn't get boring, does it? <laughs> it doesn't. It really doesn't. Great. Congratulations yeah. on uh, trusted sources, Lombard, TSO Lombard, Jonathan Fenby, and Charles Duma, among others, uh, as well. And I'll tell you, folks, it's never. Uh, doll. Um, I, you know, I was making the joke this morning off of the acclaimed Keynes uh, quote, and this is, of course, Robert Skidelsky's wonderful essay in the Project Syndicate uh, today. When the facts change, I change. We are seeing all sorts of people on Wall Street adapt and adjust to the stunning election of Donald uh, Trump. As we mentioned earlier, HSBC and Steve Major change what has been a, a brilliant call on lower interest rates and lower for longer. I just put a chart out on Twitter uh, showing this, and we'll feature that chart tomorrow on Bloomberg Television. Jillian Jessup with us with Capital Economics. They do, for those of you in America particularly, Capital Economics does just wonderfully dense research on the state of strategy and the state of, oh, everyone from Brexit. They've been brilliant on uh, Brexit not being the end of London, and Jillian Jessup joins us now in our London studios. You changed as well, 3% the end of 2017. What is a 3% inflation, a yield rather, what does a 3% yield do to our listeners' paychecks? The inflation-adjusted wage, flat or will it be down? Well, I think it's important to understand the context in which bond yields are rising. Um, if 
President Trump does indeed deliver stronger economic growth and a stronger labor market, then what we'd be seeing in the bond market is simply a normalization where yields and borrowing costs more generally return towards the sorts of levels that you'd hope for in an economy growing at 2 to 3 percent and one where the labor market is fairly tight. So um, it's not necessarily bad news um, for your listeners, um, though it might be if a big sell-off in the bond market triggers weakness in, in other asset markets. There's a big fall in, in equity markets. Um, or if a rise in borrowing costs across the board makes companies more cautious about investment, if it leads to higher mortgage rates and therefore um, bigger cost of owning your own home, <coughs> then it could well, cause problems. But so far, at least, I see it actually is quite healthy. I agree that Econ 101 is the ambiguity when things change. What's the predominant effect that we will see, that we see witnessing on the Bloomberg screen today? Mm. Well, it depends what's driving what. If the if bond yields are rising as a symptom of increased optimism about the US economy, uh, and in particular the prospect that interest rates won't need to remain near zero, near emergency levels for much longer, because the economy is doing well, um, then I think the bond market weakness is just something that we accept as, as, as almost something to be welcomed. Um, if, on the other hand, the bond market weakness reflects either inflation taking off, which I think, frankly, is a possibility, given how the US economy is already operating close to capacity and arguably doesn't need a fiscal stimulus, um, or if the sell-off in the bond market prompts wider weakness in, in other financial assets, maybe even prompts an overreaction from the Fed, then I think it could be a problem. But the key point is it doesn't necessarily have to be. This could be simply the long-awaited normalization of interest rates and bond yields that we've frankly been hoping for for some time. Did that long-awaited normalization, did your view of when and how that will happen change at all after the election results of Tuesday? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, our central scenario, like I think most people's, had been that Hillary Clinton would win and the, the Fed would return to raising rates gradually um, in December and therefore that bond yields would, would rise. Um, the one thing that's changed, of course, is that maybe yields will rise even quicker, as indeed they have over the last few days, and get to a higher level rather, rather sooner. Um, I think that many things that you might think of... Uh, uh, President-elect Trump's new program, but one thing he's made very clear is that there's going to be increased emphasis on looser fiscal policy uh, and actually a positive welcome for tighter monetary policy is removing some sort of the artificial economy we're seeing in the financial markets. Um, so we're already expecting bond yields to rise, but now they've risen quicker and we think they'll rise further than we previously anticipated. Julian, when you think about that fiscal package, that, that infrastructure plan, what does it have to look like to, to make a difference? Well, there are different, lots of different aspects of it. Um, I think the thing the markets would like to see most is, is infrastructure spending. That's the thing that has the, the biggest impact, both on the demand side of the economy, but also potentially boosting the supply side. Um, if all you do is cut taxes, they're relatively well off. They may well spend that money. They may well save it. But that doesn't necessarily yeah. boost growth in the longer term. The distinction Lawrence Summers put on it, I would suggest even his critics call him an economist of note, <laughs> is what I call the how much which in so many mathematical relationships, particularly in finance, people overlook, they get the vector right, but they overlook the how much the amplitude. Pre uh, Professor Summers was advocating much bigger infrastructure than President Trump or his Republicans can stomach. Do you, does capital economics have a sense mm -hmm. of the how much it's necessary to make infrastructure move the needle? 
Well, first of all, I think there are a couple of reasons for thinking that the infrastructure boost won't be quite as big as the markets now seem to be anticipating. One is the, the constraints in the political system in the US. After all, uh, Republicans, by and large, are fiscally conservative. Um, if he's planning to spend an awful lot more on infrastructure, he wouldn't have as much to do on, on tax cuts. Uh, and, of course, there are the constraints of the debt ceiling as well. So the first point is that um, it may be less than he's planning anyway. The second point is it needs to be seen in, in context. If we're thinking about the global economy, uh, then China this year alone has added an additional $200 billion worth of infrastructure spending in the first nine months of the year alone. So if that spending drops off next year, as I think it will, and the China economy slows, that could still have a much bigger negative impact on global industrial commodity prices uh, than anything that um, Trump is likely to do over the next few years. Remembering that infrastructure spending tends to be slow. It takes a while to build up, and it won't be much happening next year. I, I, oh, go ahead, David. I'm sorry. No, no I'll, I'll introduce this. We can come back and talk about it here in yeah. a couple of minutes. But I just I, I wonder sort of what's changed notionally. There was so much pushback when President Obama proposed more more stimulus, more fiscal spending, and now we, we have this election. It seems <laughs> like it's, everything has changed. I'm not really sure me, what happened me, here. Let us explain this, Julian, to young Gura. Now it's our bridge and not there you your go. bridge. There you go. <laughs> And we say that with uh, thanks to Gina Raimondo, governor of Rhode Island, who showed up uh, last week. It was great to have her in with the bridge challenges that they have in Rhode Island. David Gurr in New York. I'm Tom Keen in London. Shout out right now to the Victorian Albert Museum. They are just absolutely killing it with two shows right now. One of them is is Revolution. David Gura, I can't convey what it's like to go into a museum and see your childhood as an exhibition. Aha. This is the it Revolution of the 60s. The, yeah, it was <laughs> it was odd to see Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band venerated, if yeah. you will. It was I remember sitting on Mike Hasenauer's bed looking at this record album. A record album, David, is a big thing. You hold it in your hands and it spins around it. What else do they have? A lot of Warhol? Yeah, they got the whole 60s Twiggies thing going, you know, the usual. But also they've got their Opus Anglicum uh, medieval embroidery show. Uh -huh. Just I can't say enough about what the v and uh, is doing museum, as well. Yeah. Um, Julian Jessup here with Capital Economics, who uh, is telling us about modern Britain as we look at Opus Anglicanum from Plantagenet uh, times in places. But it speaks to the resiliency of our economic and political systems. We forget in our modern uproar, Julian, that these are resilient societies, aren't they? Um, well, I think that's right. A lot depends on the, the quality of the, of the institutions. There's been a, a bit of a big argument, for example, in the UK recently about the, um, whether or not our judges should be allowed to decide whether or not parliament or the government uh, decides when we actually um, implement the legal framework necessary to leave the European Union. But, but what's reassuring is that that debate is being carried out in, with a free press. It's being carried out in public. Some people disagree about whether the judges should have this right or not. Um, but it's an open, honest debate, and the institutions, by and large, are, are working pretty well. I think part of the benefit there is that we have had these institutions for an awful long period of time. Um, you know, centuries in, in many cases. Whereas some of the new things that are coming along, people are less comfortable with. I still think the European Union, um, certainly the Euro, is relatively short-lived if you set it against that long span of history and hasn't got that sort of tradition behind it. And I think people are far more willing to be you know, dumping things like the EU or the Euro than there would be some of the underlying institutions that I think are a lot stronger, have a lot better history.
I know that you, you keep a close watch on the commodity space. We were talking mm -hmm. earlier about what we've seen in, in, in industrial metals, copper, uh, stronger than it's been in, in a long time here. It seems like uh, folks are very willing, very eager to place a bet here on the probability of, of what's going to happen in, in a Donald Trump administration. How, uh, how foolhardy is that at this point to, to do that? Oh, well, I think it's, it's risky. I don't think anybody really knows what Donald Trump is going to do as president, including, frankly, Donald Trump himself. So you're very brave to take a big directional bet on the, on the back of this. Um, my own feeling is that what markets have done in the, in the last few days is that they've um, been willing to accept that or hope that Trump is going to do some of the good things that he promised during the election campaign. But frankly, none of the bad things. So all the concerns that many of us still have about the prospect of a trade war um, have been put to one side. Um, a trade war would have major implications for the global economy and for demand for commodities worldwide. Um, but also some of the domestic policies. I mean, we, you know, we're hearing fresh talk about possibly uh, three million migrant workers um, being pushed out of the country. That would have a substantial impact. Um, we can talk about the politics if you like, but the economic impact of that uh, in the short term at least could be quite damaging. So th there's still some potentially quite difficult and nasty challenges for the markets to, to deal with. David, I'm over here in merry old London. Has <laughs> someone in the last 24 hours explained how we migrate X amount of immigrants out of the country? No. Have you seen a good article on this? Not a good article on it yet, and it was something that Leslie Stahl asked Donald Trump about last night. Again, that's where that three million figure came from. He, he said he intends to do it and, and, and to do it quickly. Um, but I think that um, I think that Julian brings up a very good point there, which is there there, there are, all, are all of these things that are eventualities, variables that we don't know know about yet. Yeah. And, and it, how worried are you about the, the, the trade war variable, Julian? Well, I'm a little bit less worried, to be fair, than I was when I initially heard mm. the news that Trump had been elected. Um, I mean, he has said some more moderate things in, in other areas. I mean, he, he not for, he's not, for example, going to dump all of Obamacare. Uh, and he has made some conciliatory noises towards some of the, the overseas partners, including even China. So um, I, I would hope that wiser voices prevail and there'd be recognition that a, a trade war triggered by punitive tariffs on, on China uh, would at least in the short term cause significant damage to the US economy as well, including many of the people who would have voted for Trump. Um, that said, there is, of course, a global trend um, against free trade, against globalization, which um, uh, Trump has very successfully tapped into, which is nothing new. We're seeing the same things in, in, in Europe and across much of Asia, actually, as well. Um, so I, I would be concerned that some of the benefits of globalization mm. will, be, will be rolled back. I'm not saying globalization is all good. It clearly has right. some important distributional impacts that <clears throat> some politicians oh. haven't yet properly tackled. Um, but overall, the world economy, right. including many of the world's poorest oh. people, have benefited. Sitting on the surveillance golf stream uh, coming <laughs> over, I spent a lot of time Julian, thinking about NAFTA with the United Kingdom, is mm. there any feasibility that the United Kingdom would establish a bilateral or, I, 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 I got to figure out how to get Iceland in this, a regional <laughs> agreement with Canada, Mexico, the United States, and the United Kingdom? Well, it's not a completely crazy idea. Um, the big problem. Why not? Well, the, the main I mean, problem... I mean, my executive producer, yeah. Rachel Worspan, you have no idea how she can unload Fortum and Mason <laughs> <Yeah>. duty-free <laughs> at Heathrow. 
I mean, they need a they need a carriage to get it out to the airplane. Well, if I mean, geography is still important. If we we could relocate the the UK somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, then I think it would be a serious runner. But the uh, the reality is that we do about half of our trade with the rest of of Europe for obvious geographical reasons. Uh, we do about twenty percent of our trade with the US. The US is our biggest single trading partner uh, as a single country. Um, but Europe is still going to be where most of our okay. exports go. And also, of course, in terms of the fastest growing markets, those will be in the emerging world. They'll be India, they'll be China. They won't yeah, but be very the US. quickly here, as Prime Minister May and her uh, government precluded from beginning discussions with Mr. Trump because of the permanent agreements that they have pre-Brexit? It's uh, the government in the UK can't sign or implement Agreed, any new trade but deal. But they can talk. They can certainly talk, and I'm absolutely certain that they will it's be. Fabulous. After all, we were we were in India last week talking about these sorts of trade deals. So yes, talking can happen, just not yet signing. Okay. Julian Jessup, thank you so much for the capital. You can, David, I think we're going to be employed for the next yeah. few years. <laughs> You and I are going to be employed bringing yeah. back all those biscuits for Rachel, it yeah. sounds like. <laughs> the New York Magazine, thanks to Sylvia for putting this out on uh, Twitter. They're out, of course, with a acclaimed New York cartoon. It shows the president-elect in front of the chief justice. Uh -huh. Mrs. Trump is uh, wearing mink. And will, to the best of my ability, which is terrific ability, by the way, <laughs> everyone agrees I have fantastic ability, so there's no problem with my ability. Believe me. For the oath of office, <laughs> the New Yorker uh, editorializing perhaps with a cartoon to keep things light. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.